unhappiest in the saddle. <laughs> a fellow sportsman. I am an FBI agent. Great Scott. What do you say we cut the chit-chat a-hole? Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Come with me if you want to live. Hello, and welcome to Retro Ramble. I'm Charlie McGee. I'm George McGee. And this month, because we're nearly through 2018, Christmas is almost upon us, it's never been a better time to go back and revisit the diehard of diehard films. Die Hard. <laughs> We've been waiting for it for long enough. Some people said we should have done it last year. <coughs> Correction, it's 30 years old this year, and that's why we're doing it now, mother luckers. Because it's best to wait for a special occasion. Yeah, we wanted to, you know, get flexed, get pumped, you know, feel about, feel the space, feel the energy, feel the flow. Anyway, we just wanted to get a few episodes under our belt before we attack this behemoth. It's now been out for 30 years and it's... It's a big film for us. It's a big film for everybody. We're going to try and do it justice. Yeah, we're also going to try and talk about... We're going to mainly focus on what this film means to us, why it's been so important to us, and obviously that will lead into why it's been such a success of a film by itself, the impact it's had on the industry, and we'll try not to cover too much ground because everybody and their mother has had or done some form of review of this film. So we're going to try and keep it light. But we're still going to try and keep it retro rambles. Yeah, we're going to keep it in the usual format. So there'll be some production chat from, um, from, from mainly from George, because he's the man who knows. We will then just saunter through the film, focusing on mainly the one-liners that we like and the, the action set pieces. And there'll be some coulda, woulda, shoulda. But being diehard, I'd imagine it's going to be probably one of our longer episodes. So maybe slightly more than the typical hour that we spend. But before we go any further, a quick word from housekeeping and general Nakatomi rules from George. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, we are film lovers. We may not be experts on everything, so please bear with us. We aim to entertain, but we also aim to inform. There will be times where we will be doing some bad impressions. There may be some spoilers. Well, it is Die Hard. And if you haven't seen Die Hard, one, what are you doing with your life? Two, what are you doing listening to this episode? You're not worthy of listening to this episode. Why did you even download it? What are you doing? Stop it now, go and watch Die Hard. You'll uh, thank us later. Anyway, there's gonna be lots of impressions, most likely uh, belonging to Alan Rickman, amongst others. So yeah, that's about it. Great, okay, well, we, the reason we were just, you know, sort of dragging our feet on the introduction was we were just waiting for our friends at the FBI to turn up and cut the power like so clockwork. An, so an automatic recording could begin. Here is Die Hard, enjoy. see his wife. Instead, he's going to have to save her. Sit down. Within this skyscraper high above the city, 12 terrorists have declared war. There is brilliant because I am interested in the six 
$140 million in your vault. As they are ruthless. But I'm telling you, you're just going to have to kill me. Okay. We do it the hard way. Now, the last thing McLean wants... Think, damn it, think! ...is to be a hero, but he doesn't have a choice. Bruce Willis, Die Hard. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? So, George, this is a big one. It's Die Hard. How did we get this film? Why are we so lucky to have got Die Hard? So, one of our bigger episodes, one of our earliest episodes, was a little independent film known as Predator. Yes. Now, that was... A hundred and... Well, that was 90 minutes of fun for me. I think that's probably our longest episode, to be fair. And it's probably a little bit self-indulgent, but hey-ho. Hey, it's one of our most downloaded episodes, so it can't be all that bad. Can't be all that bad. Or just, it's nice to know that many of our listeners are just as good or bad as we are. It's an essential part of film viewing. Um, So, yeah, that film, Predator, was uh, produced by, by Joel Silver and Lawrence Gordon and directed by John McTiernan. As is Die Hard, which was a year later. Um, so Joel Silver was um, one of the biggest producers of the 80s and 90s, as was Lawrence Gordon. Between the two of them, they uh, produced the Predator films, the Lethal Weapon series, Die Hard and Roadhouse. Joel Silver would also go on later in his career to produce a small film called The Matrix, so yeah, these um, I think Lawrence Gordon was was is still producing films as well. So yeah, some monolithic films in our back catalogue. Yeah, I think yeah, pre- pretty much. You know, any sort of key action film from the eighties, they had their hands on. Well, it goes to show. I mean, I mentioned the similarities in terms of what this film meant to us. That it was just right up there with Predator, with The Matrix, with Commando, and George, as he does pointed out the links that exist between... Yes, uh, so, uh, Commander's uh, missed off that list. That's a, I think that's a Joel Silver film as well. It's a Joel Silver joint. So, yeah, I mean, this... It was from, you know, some of the best heads in Hollywood of the time. And... Um, so, in terms of its basis, so it's actually um, based on a novel by Roderick Thorpe called Nothing Lasts Forever which almost sounds, sounds like, like a Bond title. I was going to say, sounds like a Bond title, um, which is actually a sequel novel to The Detective, which was made into a film starring Frank, Frank Sinatra in the, and I think it was made in the late 60s. Part of Sinatra's contract included options to the sequel novels. So actually Frank Sinatra had first refusal to play the role in this film. And by this point in the mid 80s, Frank Sinatra was in the 70s, so he gracefully passed on the role. So uh, I will go into, at the end of the episode, uh, all the many, many A-listers that were approached for this role before. We're gonna have a big coulda, woulda, shoulda. Yes, before it landed at the the flat feet of one Walter Bruce Willis. But the- Walter. Walter. Um, but the script is um, is co-written by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza. Uh, D'Souza also wrote Commando. And for many years, it was wrongly assumed that the script for Die Hard started off as a sequel to Commando. Right. Because in the novel, Nothing Lasts Forever, 
the character of Joe Leyland, obviously would morph into John McClane, is visiting his daughter at a... Um, there's, there's a lot of things that are, are kept the same. It's set at Christmas. Um, it is an actual terrorist attack rather than an a elaborately staged robbery. Um, but yes, he is visiting his daughter and then the hostage situation takes place. And I think the confusion comes out. What's well, come out by de Souza says that the fact that Die Hard started off as Commando 2 is nonsense. However, they did the script, even though it was never made, Commando 2, there was some similar scenes, including a hostage situation in a building. Mm-hmm. So that's where that sort of comes about. I say the main differences between the book and the movie is that it is his daughter and not his wife that he's visiting. Um, it is a terrorist attack. And uh, interestingly, his daughter dies at the end of the movie. So when, great. when Hans Gruber, I think he's called Tony Gruber, the less memorable Tony Gruber in the, <laughs> in the novel, when he's shot and falls out the window and grabs the watch, yeah. he actually pulls the yeah. daughter out. So it's quite a, a bleak ending. Yeah. I like bleak endings. But Hollywood doesn't. Okay. Um, so shut up. And also, apparently, the main character is permanently crippled by the time his book, book is over, but never mind. That's so, pretty bleak. How so, did we get to Happy, Happy Die Hard that we have? So the script was turned down by uh, John McTiernan several times. So... So Predator was his sort of breakout role. He'd, he'd, I think, he, I think it was his second feature, and obviously he was hot shit after Predator. Um, but he turned down the script several times. He said it was a nasty piece of work, um, but he was finally persuaded to take on the script when he was able to lighten up some of the darker edges. So he changed the bad guys um, from from terrorists into thieves pretending to be terrorists. So he said, you know, audiences love you know to see you know bad guys almost get away with it and by you know obviously thieves are a bit more lovable than terrorists yeah but he also the also major script change he made in the original script mclean then known as the very all-american john ford was a counter-terrorism expert and McTiernan insisted he become a flawed beat cop because it was more relatable to the audience and it was streets away from the Arnie and the Stallone action guy mold. All I can hear when you say beat cop is Sean Connery from The Untouchables. And that's why <laughs> I included it. I'm just a poor beat cop. <laughs> Again, one of the reasons why he wanted to change it from terrorists into thieves because he didn't want it to have a political angle. And a key point of this film that, again, it's, it's a very well-known fact, but the Nakatomi building is actually the Fox Plaza. So it's actually the Fox skyscraper in LA. So it's owned by them? So it's owned by Fox. How did they get the rights to shoot there? Oh, we own um, the building. That was under construction at the time. So they were- Genius. Act- so they were actually filming on building sites in their own building. So I think the 30th and 31st floors- Hadn't been finished yet. Hadn't been finished yet. So the, I did not know that. You've probably told me this before, but I just don't listen to you all the time because you've got so much knowledge. But wait, there's more. <laughs> okay, okay, go on, Mr. Nerd. Because of financing uh, legal regulations, Fox had to charge themselves location fees. How does that work? So that well, I the, think to so, keep the books so level. So there's an invoice 
And then there's a the payment. Hey, wait a minute, you still owe me, but, so, but I, if you were you and I was me, then who would pay So me? Fox locations are charging Fox, I don't know. Left hand, this yeah. is right hand. Okay. Basically different departments paying each other. Um, so yeah, they were actually filming in the building and that obviously saved a lot of costs, but there was still, um, apparently there was still other people working in the building. So it wasn't all Fox offices. There was apparently some... Uh, legal firms in there and obviously hearing night after night of gunshots they were threatening legal action for disturbances and and all that jazz um i do like the idea of it maybe you know the evil tyrant rupert murdoch having a an office on the top floor on the top floor <laughs> like mr takaki i say they did a lot of filming on site but the the main uh the 30th floor i should say where the office party was held was was all studio shot, as you okay. can imagine, the, the finished floors that you see. Right, got you. Uh, I've seen that looks like a kick-ass office with the whole water features, it's like a duplex. It's impressive, it's impressive. I mean, if you're gonna be somebody like Ellis and you're doing all that blow, you wanna be doing it in an office. With an amazing view. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's it in terms of the sort of the main sort of the script development, um, I say, we'll go into casting later on. Well, but what, I think I think McTiernan, he was very key in terms of the development of the script of it being another generic thriller. Well, that's something that I remember from on one of the. I watched this um, obviously recently, but I, I watched this when I got my. It was it was one of the first films that, if you get one of these new tellies, the default setting is actually with this motion blur. Mm. And I remember watching, die, trying to watch Die Hard and it looking like somebody had shot it on an iPhone. And there's actually, on a slight tangent, Christopher Nolan and some other director are com at the moment campaigning to the likes of Panasonic, Sony and Samsung to change the TV. I think it's Ryan Johnson. Yeah, it's Ryan Johnson yeah. and um, Nolan. Chris Nolan are campaigning to change the, turn the default setting off. Because I've done that since, and films look normal. But you see all of the TVs now showing the Avengers in a TV show. And, it, lo and it looks like behind the scenes footage. Well, there is that, but with these new films with tons of CGI, it actually it looks like uh, The Hobbit did with this weird yeah. sort of frame rate. But on older films, it looks like it's been shot this morning. It looks like, you know, sons and daughters, soap, daytime TV yeah. type shit. So, I mean, that was when I, I watched it, and then I obviously watched it again. But on the extras, Alan Rickman... Uh, the late, great Alan Rickman, who we have a lot of love for, not just because of this film, um, he came out and said it was the script. It was, the mm. script is what everybody couldn't get their heads around. It's like, yeah, let's do this. It's slightly different. Um, I think if we look, the, with the benefit of hindsight, we look back to this being a, you know, if you look at today being a heyday for comic book and superhero films, this was very much... The action hero. Well, the, the action hero, the... I think the end of it was almost was the early 90s last action hero, and this was the beginning, and then it morphed into the one... Uh, we'd already had Commando by this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'd already had and the Rambos, we'd already had the one-man army. This was the, let's flip it again. Let's have the, the one-man army in a limited space, confined space, fighting off and there's like okay let's not make him a super let's, let's make him a, a beat cop yeah um, an, an, an unexpected hero yeah and let's play with the story but the script is great there's some as uh, you know we normally we can't really talk about first memories when it comes to this film because 
we've watched it so to death to uh, death hard no we've, but it's, it's it's funny that i just think of one liners i just i have a memory of of asking dad if i could watch it because i had friends that had a copy of it most likely it was our neighbors the glendonings um drink um <laughs> and and i think i must have been around eight at the time or something and seems like the right age to watch die hard though yeah and i was i was like sort of passionately saying oh it's you know it's not that bad it's just an action film and he was just like no you're not watching it and he was really firm about it and the swearing and bad language no no i think he was more con- he was concerned it was about, about the gore it was about the violence yeah. yeah it was the gore and the violence uh and i was oh, i hate you um and i wasn't even a teenager and yeah sure enough I, I i ended up watching it anyway but and yes it it does have its moments of of violence but compared to other films of its ilk other horror films or films and, since that are much more easily accessible yeah but yeah that's one of my first memories but it's funny like going back through this watching it i was watching it last week and it shows how often i have watched it i could remember where they inserted the commercial breaks yeah so there's like a bit where like you first see al powell and then john mcclain says something and i was like and i was almost saying in my head and cut to commercial break but it was like when we talked about when we did raiders can you remember me talking about when the just slight tangent for anybody who's not listened to our raiders of the lost ark episode but there was i remembered with the ark when it gets on fire on the boat yeah where the where it burns oh, the yeah, Nazi album, there was always uh, I think because it had the Nazi album, they're like that's a good place to put a break. There was always a break there. Yeah. And so like now when I watch the film, I'm, it's like that muscle memory. You're waiting for the break. Yeah, it's it's nuts. So that's yeah one of the the uh, the first things I remember. And it's, you know it's interesting you talking about the the DVD, and I think it shows that the sort of the lasting impression this film has on on our generation was that this was one of the first DVD box sets to come out. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? And I remember the anticipation from all of us, like amongst all of our like friends that had bought into the DVDs, like, oh yeah, you get you get all three and it's got, you know... They all had like, tons of extras. Yeah, there, I think there was even a feature. Well, this, this point I'm making about Alan Rickman talking about the script, that was like behind the scenes footage. He was, and they were going around talking to a bunch of people. So it was... Well, it was no, there was even a feature, I remember, on the, on the DVD because it was like at that time, and we've talked about it on previous episodes, like the joke that the limited extras on those first DVDs, you know, that... They're throwing everything on well, it. You know... Uh, over over 13 minutes of special features but with with Die Hard they had this thing that you could actually edit your own scene so it showed you it included all the different camera angles of a scene and I think it was the bit where uh, Rickman's uh, sorry uh, Hans Gruber is into is interrogating Takagi and it gave you all the different camera angles and you could edit them and splice them together and then watch the scene. So you can imagine, dear listeners, how nuts George went about DVDs back then. They were perfect for a film buff like him. Um, but then doing it all on your DVD remote control was really unuser friendly, so it was a terrible idea. Left, 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 yeah. down, 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 down. Enter. Oh, no, oh, no, I've, no, I've no, made no. a mistake. I've done it wrong. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, I think they, at its time, it was pushing the DVD format to its limits. And it was, I've still got that that box set and it comes with a 
I'm doing air quotes again, limited edition. I've got a cell from, I think, Die Hard 1, like, you know, a film cell, you know, yeah. negative. And yes, it was it was a big deal where when it came out. And that was back when they were, DVDs were like events. And now it's like kind of, this is before Steelbooks and and all that jazz. It was quite a big event. Now it's, you know, they're sort of 10 a penny. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, my, in terms of my first memories, I just remember me and the older Glendinnings, you know, partitioning our parents not to allow you and your friends to watch it, saying that you were too young. Swine. <laughs> no, but seriously, obviously, we watched this film to death, but that's why it's quotable. We were talking about this earlier after when we were prepping for this. Most of my notes are just quotes. Yeah, I mean, it's just so many one-liners. I mean, you've got everything from... If we just dive into the film, um, the, mm. we've got the opening. I love the credits of this film. I love... Um, the way they slam together. Yeah, it just just all of that. And the music, and it's like this eerie jingle bell riff that's kind of going on. Those I was those bells. I was tempted to bring my... My daughter has lots of musical instruments, one being sort of bells on a stick, and I was tempted to bring them just to have them going through the episode. But we can that, just... Do the, do the bells she has sound like those? I yeah. hope not. Oh my god! So that's what you and think. She's of. also got. My daughter has a uh, like a toddler xylophone, and one of the and it's all color coded, and one of the song sheets you get, you know, it's like green, green, red, red. One of them is Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Oh. The, the, the Die Hard, also known as the Die Hard. Yeah. yeah the, the, I know the one. Yeah. We'll, we'll drop it in. I was, again, I was tempted to, to play it on the, the xylophone, but... God, wait till she discovers... After she's got through Frozen, wait till she discovers Die Hard. Well, indeed, <laughs> indeed. It's a matter of weeks. But, um, yeah, so in the first act, I just always... I, I love the fact that you've got the smoggy sunset... We're in LA, we're in California. Stock look, footage of a plane landing. Yeah, look at it, it's amazing. And then you've got that guy... The weasel guy about making fists wherever you get where you're going, you make fists with your toes. I still don't understand that. Because well, it's to relieve stress. No, but he's saying you're a nervous flyer. Yeah. When you get home, make fists with your toes. You're not a nervous flyer, so you don't understand. So it's no, basically about build. I think it's about... No, but when you're on the flight, it's, just, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, but later on, when you're not stressed When you out, get where you're going, you make fists with your toes. I think the point is, one, he's, an, he's inserted as a Jewish stereotype. Yeah. And second of all, I think it's about relieving stress. All right. I okay. think it's the fact that he's nervous. And if you get hate flying, yeah. Yeah. Everybody hates flying because they're all having the flight. first time. No, I've been nervous lots of times. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's, but, it's a very, very quick. It's very, very quick. Actually. He's but, on the plane. He's off the plane. He's no, in the no, limo. No, but you've missed something because he's got a gun on an airplane. I mean, those are the good old days that a cop... Yeah. Could just get on a plane. He's a cop. I have a gun. Carry I carry a gun. Just to let you know, George, because I read a lot of Bosch, um, cops still get on planes now with guns. I'm a cop. I'm a cop. He's a cop. Yeah, so that's not a new thing or an old thing or well, anything that's... St they're still in this day and you know, age. If you're, if you're a cop... I'm not allowed a 500ml bottle of water... But, You're not allowed more than but, 100 mils unless it's in a clearly, but, clearly but, noted bottle. But Dirty Harry can get on, plain clothes Johnny, Harry I think, Bosch. I think the official terminology is that a law enforcement officer 
is allowed on the plane. They you know, tell the pilot they're on the plane. The pilot sometimes bumps them up to first class. It makes the pilot feel safer the closer the cops are to the cockpit. And that's what happens. Um, At least that's what happens in a Bosch book. And if it happened in a Bosch book... It's true. You know it's happened. It's true. Okay, fair enough. Anyway, can... So, you, so you've got... Is he still on Die Hard or am I on Bosch now? We're <laughs> babbling about Bosch. I'm in LA, you Bo- know. Boshing the Bosch. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, We're back so, on Die Hard. Um, Brucey, he's so young. He's so fresh He's got hair. He's got hair. More importantly, he's got hair. Um, he, he, he isn't squinting that much. But I've noticed how much in this he's always checking out the ladies. Oh, yeah. He's a complete sleaze. Because, well, they're Well, I mean, his, 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 his marriage is broken down. But how do we know his marriage is broken down, Charlie? Because she's not taking his name anymore? Because he's got in the limo of exposition. Okay. <laughs> I forgot about the limo of exposition with Argyle. So, you married? <laughs> he kind of it's almost like he's reading from a script so you, but she, she you wouldn't come out here yeah um you cap <laughs> um but no I think they even like they the um McTiernan and uh, you always De- ask so many questions our girl sorry we're just gonna stop quoting uh, now. and DeSalza was saying it was you know quick it is that Quick, and we always talk about this in our podcast, it's that... No, but it's the difference between e- rapid and economic. This is economic. This is economics. It's getting out the way of why is he going there, who this guy is. He's, he's not... The fact that he is, he's, he's a Joe, he's a, you know, he's a beat cop. He's riding up front because he feels awkward riding in the back of a limo. He's, he's a guy just like you or I. He's an accessible man of people. Actually, to be honest, you know, if you read, and obviously there have been hundreds upon thousands of reviews and even retrospective reviews of this film, and what a lot of the people say, probably because they're copying from each other and can't come up with anything new, is that he was the first... Relatable. Relate, thank you, dictionary. Yeah, first relatable action hero is the fact that he's a beat cop Whoa, uh, whoa, really whoa, well whoa, built. Whoa. <laughs> I have, I can relate to John, oh, John Matrix. Yeah, he, I can't do. He it. has a daughter. He fe- he feeds ice cream. Girl, girl, why don't they call him Girl George? Yeah, you make jokes like that. You carry logs. Okay, I get it. So you yeah. can relate to that, and I can relate to Stallone because there have been times I've had a ridiculous goatee that looks drawn on, <laughs> drawn on beard. Um, so he gets to Nakatomi, and the one thing I loved about this, and it's again, it's like you, you mentioned it before about the whole reveal that she's using her maiden name, is he goes to the, it's this, you know, Japanese company, high tech digital check in system. We're 30 years later, and literally last week at work, I get an email saying, we're trying in this new iPad check-in system. It's so like, you do realise they had this in Die Hard exactly. thirty years ago. Thirty years ago, and we're just we're just trialing it in London in this you know sort of big global media company. We're just going to try in a, a digital check-in system, a touchscreen. But the thing I love about this, and I, it's it, again, it's kind of sort of expositional d- dialogue, but. He's like, the guy's like, oh, um, he's like, I'm here to see, you know, Holly McLean's like, oh, use, use a digital touch in. And he like goes through this whole thing and he's like, 34, he goes, oh yeah, they're the only ones left in the building. He's like, why didn't you fucking say that? The first thing, so you're here for the party? <laughs> yeah, Your like, wife, Holly you McLean, <laughs> Holly McLean, she's going to be on the 30th floor, everyone else is there. I mean, the only person here, apart from those lawyers who <laughs> don't actually work here, are going to sue us later. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love the, uh, I'm guessing it's the homophobic b- 
bit where the drunk guy kisses McClane. Merry Christmas! Yeah. And he just goes, fucking California. Yeah. <laughs> it is the New York beat cop. I think we'll... Uh... No, but I think the, the other thing to point out is that there's two things going on. We've got his arrival at Nakatomi, but we also, at the same time, which is spliced, is we also have the arrival of uh, Hans Gruber and team who are arriving in the car park. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, so, yes, they arrive in their truck and apparently it's a well or a fairly known movie goof mistake that they all come out the truck you know getting ready to go and you can see the whole truck and then there's nothing in the background but at the end of the film when they're making their escape spoilers there's an ambulance in the truck because at that point when they'd started filming they hadn't worked out how the terrorists were planning to escape they hadn't worked out yeah. the finer things so Towards the end of the film, the truck gets bigger to right. accommodate. And gains and, an ambulance. And gains an ambulance. Good work, truck. It's the office party, and being an 80s film... People are doing to blow and sleeping with each other. At there's got to be some obligatory tits and ass. Yeah, you've got to have some of that. I can't, um, I can't remember. It's like there's at least... Is, aren't, isn't somebody in, interrupted? There's somebody... It's, an, it's a Christmas party, so, yeah, there's obviously going to be some shagging. Yeah. But obviously being an 80s film, they obviously have the... In the lift shaft, they have the... The calendar, the Playboy calendar as well. Some, yeah, yeah, some, a little bit of TNA. A little bit of TNA keeps the guys going. Um, but yeah, obviously Hans Bubby turns up to do his speech, and and we'll we'll drop in some some quality Alan Rickman to do his his speech. Yeah, because he's met Holly, and then he gets. She's like, enjoy the party. He does his speech. Well, again, his there's there's that there's the frosty re- reception. Because does he turn up by surprise? It's kind of like, a, you know, if we're going to give oh, this another go again. Oh, you, ca- oh, you came. Oh, you came. <laughs> I just spilled my drink. Yeah, so there's that, again, there's that building, that that, that dynamic between those two. Um, it is important, though, because he doesn't see her for a while. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, again, it's, it's very, very good script writing, the fact that within, like, a turn of a couple of lines, they're talking, like, you know, she says, you know, um, Come and stay with me. The, the kids miss you. Yeah, I miss you. Yeah. And he goes, didn't miss my name. Yeah, and that, and that, and then they start squabbling, and it's yeah. just like, and then he's afterwards when she leaves, he's knocking his head against the door like you're a fucking idiot. Good job, John. Good job. No, but you also have that thing where she's like saying, "Come and stay with me. We'll put out the bed." And he's like, "No, it's okay. I'm going to go and stay with my Pomona. own my own Cappy in uh, Bomona." And she's like, "Pomona, I think you mean." So it's like, yeah, as you say, very quickly establishes the rift between them. And then we have the arrival of, of the one of the greatest screen villains of all time. Of all Before time. we go into that, George, can I just ask the question, would these guys, if you saw these guys coming out of an elevator in at a party these days, I would kind of think they were from some Vogue photo shoot. They don't look like the terrorists of today. No. They're all pretty handsome, shocking, Scandinavian German looks. Can I hit you with some knowledge? (laughs) So apparently this all stems to the fact that when... um, So Rickman was cast early on. um, He was cast off the back of um, McTiernan, and I think the producers went to see him in a Broadway uh, production of... Les Liaisons Dangereuses, which in English is obviously Cruel Intentions. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, you, you're amazing. You're, or, you're a natural. Or dangerous liaisons. So, yeah, um, and they cast him off the back of that. So Rickman was in the frame early on. He comes in for this costume fitting and they actually had him wearing tactical gear because of being a terrorist and all this. And Alan Rickman said, I'm going to look ridiculous. This, this is just stupid. And he suggested wearing a suit. Mm-hmm. And that quickly, the casting director jumped on it. It was like, oh yeah, I'm so sick of seeing these bulky um, terrorists. Rent, rent cop, yeah. Yeah, uh, henchmen. Why don't we go for... Put them all in sharp 80s well, no, no. yuppies. Why don't we make them look like models? Why not yeah. have them as henchmen? And so they went out and... <laughs> got all the models, yeah. Yeah, so the it said only a couple of the actors who played the German terrorists were actually German and only a couple more could speak broken German. The actors were cast for their menacing appearances rather than the nationality. Um, nine of 12 being over six foot tall. Yeah. Um, but yes, they, they wanted the crew to look more like models and less like typical henchmen. But I just love that scene where they come out, the lift really slowly and the music. There's lots of pouting. There's lots of gun pouting. What gun, I like to gun call pouting. Gun pouting, where you're holding a gun, and you're pointing got, it at the ceiling, and you're pouting. And they've all got like names like out of Zoolander. There's Marco, there's Tony, there's, <laughs> there's Carl. Model names, honestly. <laughs> this. Who else? Male models. Who else could get behind the scenes? Yeah, there's a. That's what I, I just see. But Zool- why male models? <laughs> Zoolander and Co. coming out of the lift. But yes, we get um, a very sort of cool entry and and a great sort of intellectual monologue. Yeah, terrifying yet. I don't know, a very good reflection of of where life was in LA in a high rise in the eighties. Well, lots of blow. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Uh, due to the Nakatomi Corporation's legacy of greed around the globe, they're about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. You will be witnesses. Um, so yeah, the, the terrorists arrive, John McClane uh, makes his escape, and then they start interviewing Takagi, and, and they shoot him, McClane doesn't do anything, and then uh, I've said, McClane does some great golluming. Why didn't you do anything, John? Because you'd be dead, asshole! <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, as I say, trying to relate to us, I do... I don't know, it's just when I think of that scene, I just, I think of Takagi, I think of the music, I think of the fact that we're, it's, we're very much seeing the scene through John's eyes. Like, we, we keep getting, obviously, to see the conversation happening, but we keep getting shown John's view and he can't really, because he can't see Hans, because that will obviously be yeah. a plot point later on. So he doesn't get to see him. And it is, and you can see that that is Matinan's, um that's the vehicle of this film. So I want to show it through that we look that we see this film through his eyes. But again, there's the what there's would you do? That, that, that's something that McTurnan is fantastic at in his earlier films is, and throughout this film is the suspense. Oh god, yeah. is a drawn out suspense of having that anything every that, answer, yeah. that sort of countdown hostage negotiation really early on. Like he's not going to shoot him. He's just going to just going to have to kill me. <laughs> I love Takagi in this. I really yeah. would like more of him in this. And I'm surprised. I'm well. I don't remember him in anything else. I'm sure he probably popped up in the in the in the Last Samurai somewhere. <laughs> probably. Um, but yeah, that's that's a great scene. Um, and then it quickly jumps into 
McLean's first encounter with uh, one of the terrorists, which is, as we've talked about uh, previously, he's popped up in the living daylights as the milk bottle throwing assassin, Necros. I didn't kill him, Bond did. Uh, I think that's his only line in <laughs> Living Daylights. Um, apart from, yeah, the guy's got the flu. Oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot about his amazing cockney. Was that not ADR, though? Probably ADR, knowing the Bond. Anyway, films. enough about um, Living Daylights. <laughs> uh, and he also, again, another Retro Ramble episode, he pops up very briefly as a henchman in Mission Impossible. And Mission that's... Impossible... Ghost Protocol? No. Yeah, Ghost Protocol, he, he crops up in as well, as a blink and you miss it cameo. Oh, sorry, yeah, I always forget that he's, he's, Max, the one with he's, the long... Max, he's Max's henchman in the first one. With, with a very long That's hair. the one I, I can remember, but I can't remember him in... He's the same guy, uh, Ghost Protocol, he literally just turns up with the same balaclava. Yeah? And then that's it, he doesn't say anything. I should probably watch that film again. It's a good film. You wouldn't shoot me. There are rules for policemen. <laughs> um, great fight, terrible stunt doubles. <laughs> it is on the level of 60s Batman, isn't it's it? It's 60s Batman. It's when they're going down the stairs. He's got, it's, a, he's got. even though you, you, you've said that Bruce had a healthy head of hair. He didn't have that much hair. He did not have that much It's hair. when they roll down the stairs, you're like, okay, I understand the terrorist is dead. I understand that that guy killed him, but where the hell is Bruce Willis? <laughs> yeah, there, there's lots of clever editing of people falling down the stairs and then it, like Bruce popping up, yep, I did all that. Yeah, but apart from that, I like the fact that he's running about, it's quite sinister, and the terrorists think it's just a, an off-duty security guard, and it's the realisation for them. It's, it's them, okay, we have a pest, uh, we need to stick to the plan, and you know that... Hans is very much doing everything like clockwork mm. and that this guy's just screwing it up. It's all part of the plan. Fly in the ointment. But then there's the... Uh, John McClane does the distress call. Involves Al Pal. I love that scene with Al in the shop buying all the Twinkies and donuts, And yeah. he's saying, it's from my wife. She's pregnant. And the guy in the shop going, sure. Yeah, he goes, yeah. Even the guy, sorry, this set is really nerdy, but it shows how much you watch the film. Even the guy working behind the desk in that store has been in other films. Do you know? And even yeah. that, even that guy was a, there's, you know, was a well-established character actor. But that is one of the the first of several product placement moments in this. Did film. I see Twinkies? It's all about the Twinkies, and they even go into. Do you want the, a Coke? They even go to the recipe description, the ingredients of Twinkies later on in the film. Yeah, yeah. Nothing it, but hydrogenated fat. It was like if you actually, if you can manage to shoo in the ingredients, <laughs> will give you another hundred thousand. Wow. Okay. We're okay. One of the reasons that they, um, they had these characters in the original script, um, but they beefed up the bits with Al Powell with the the police chief, you know, Dwayne T. Robinson, you know, Clarence Beeks. Yeah. With Holly, because Bruce Willis was at you know, at the time he this was his first uh film role because he was still doing the, TV. He was still doing moonlighting. And he was like what we talked about in Back to the Future, he was doing them both at the same time. So he was filming Moonlighting during the day. Mm -hmm. And then going to film Die Hard at night, and at some on some points he was getting like twenty minutes sleep, mm -hmm. and McTiernan said to the scriptwriter, "Like we're killing Bruce, you, you need to." Give he seems to be losing his hair more rapidly <laughs> than before. Seems to be getting grumpier. Um, we we need to beef up the other roles, and that's if anything that that adds to 
how why the film works because it's more rounded out on the other characters even like down to the the dickhead uh, the reporter the reporter douche I've got dickless uh, (laughs) dickless I've got a section here which is like there are three the the douches in (laughs) in this film which we'll get to there is cop boss Dwayne Dwayne Robinson we've got the reporter douche and of course Dick Thornburg and then the FBI douches Johnson and Johnson no No, relation no relation that'll be coming up later on Again, we've talked about these moments of tension, even though it is absolutely ridiculous. You've got that bit that, again, is ingrained. You know, you talk about muscle memory, music memory, whatever. That bit where he's jumping into the the air conditioning shaft using the the MP5 belt belt uh, and, so, yeah and it's the creaking of the plastic. You can and, feel it. It's going to break, Chance. Yeah. It's going to break. And. It's so ridiculous. It's like, why don't you just climb down the lift shaft wires? But that's not important. No, no, you can't, can't. It's, it's, it's about telling a story. But that's, that scene, that you, whole... You know what, talking about being relatable, I don't know if you were about to say that, but when I watch that scene, I'm like, there's no fucking way I could do that. Well, no, that's, it still, no still makes me nervous, that whole point, because it's still, it's very good effects, even though it's obviously some, like, matte painting or whatever, but... I'm sure there's something in the behind, behind the scenes that the stuntman actually missed the the wrong oh, spot. Yeah, you just remind me where he does that fall and he catches on. Yeah, it's so ridiculous. he he misses he misses one and goes down another floor. Yeah, but that still makes me nervous. That whole scene. Yeah. No, but that's what I mean. That's the I that bit stands out to me. That when I watch, I'm just like, yeah, I reckon I could take out a terrorist. I could maybe get a gun, but then I'd probably go and run and hide. This bit where he does the jump through the lift shaft and then catches, he's just like, yeah, I don't think I could do that. I don't that's where the, the relatable well, relatability I, ends. Yeah, I, I would just like wait at the door and just, just try and fight, just kill him as he came in. Well, we played the game, so we'd know exactly what to do, but it, more, more on the game later. But I mean, everything about this film in terms of cinematography, I love the... The fact that even though it's all contained, you know, some establishing shots at the beginning, but after that, the building feels big. We're in the car park. There's the plaza at the bottom. The reception looks massive and big. The where the party's happening looks really big. You have this. You have this impression that um, you know John McClane has two, at least one or two floors to run about in. There's the roof. Do you know what I mean? There's there's, well, there's a lot. It feels like it doesn't feel as confined. As, as it should do, as, as it should do, which I well, think is a is a very good, it shows an, an element of uh, McTinnan's talent. Well, no, it's also um, I've failed to mention the cinematographer on this is a guy called uh, Jan de Bont, who would go on to make Speed and Twister. Which one's Speed? Is that is that like the the one the, about the guy the, who the, couldn't the, slow down? The the film that's it's it's a bit like Die Hard on a bus. Right <laughs> now, I know. So, the police have turned up, Dwayne T. Robinson has turned up, and he gets the SWAT team involved. Yeah, we're going in with SWAT. So, you've got that brilliant bit where the SWAT guy pricks his finger, which apparently is uh, an outtake. Right. Um, which is a very memorable bit, and you've also got the... Send in the car. <laughs> Send in the car. Send in the, the car. car. And what was the plan behind that? And was the, was part of this Fox showing off how secure their building was? Well, yeah, because that's a bit. It's like they send in this car and it gets stuck on the steps. Yeah, can't get up the steps. And then it gets blown up by the uh, 
The terrorist with the rocket launcher. The stinging missile. Yeah, order nine. Do you uh, do you recognise who that guy is? I'm gonna like throw something out there. He's not from Highlander, is he? He's he's got a ponytail, but he's not in Highlander. Damn it! It was the ponytail that made me think of Highlander. He is Vigo the Carpathian. Ah, another film with a from, from Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters two. two. Yep. I'd imagine being him and like saying I was in Die Hard and Ghostbusters. And you've also got the other henchman in this. Nobody knowing who he is. In this scene uh, is the the Asian guy with the long hair and the tash. Who steals the candy? What's he been in? He's also uh, tortures Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon. Wow. And I think he's also in something else. He's like he's a henchman. He's probably in Big Trouble in Little China as well. I think you're right. I think I think that's no because I can remember. You mentioning that, us having this conversation before. <laughs> we, we don't have repeat conversations. That would never happen. No. But that is some more product placement. Which candy bars are you going to go for? Is it the Babe Ruth or is uh, it the Crunch? I think it's the Crunch. It's the Crunch it's it goes crunch. Who is Babe Ruth and why do they turn him into a chocolate bar? Babe Ruth? Yeah, I see him. Lots of dodgy uh, German. Uh, apparently, could be ADR. Who cares? Well, the the German that the the terrorists speak is apparently sometimes grammatically incorrect. Apparently, in the German version of the film, the terrorists are not from Germany, but from Europe. Oh right, I thought they were going to say maybe make them Turkish. No, or no, French. No, no, they're just <laughs> from Europe, and this has been. I think they've actually changed the. Names of the terrorists, maybe? Gruber, yeah, yeah, no. Gruber's pretty German. No, no, they uh, they did change the names for the German version, so there's no Hans and stuff like that. It's funny when films do that. There's been other films where they've had to like change it dramatically because the film has basically been a slant at their own country. I can't, I mm. can't remember what I'm thinking of. Well, there's, there's, there's probably been a few along the line. Anyway. Um, and then you get the amazing bit where Bruce... Sorry, John McClane chokes the C4 down the lift shaft. And I um, I was watching this. Uh, I've got it on... Because um, Carl, Carl is the guy from Living Daylights who has all the detonators. Where are my detonators? Yeah. Yes, Carl has the detonators. And I still don't know how that works. It just seems like you're putting lots of metal keys into... Because you've got plastic explosive. I'm no terrorist, George, but what I do know is, yeah, I think the detonators have a radio are radio controlled. But he puts in lots of things. No, I think they've got gunpowder in them. So oh, the detonators right. have little bits of gunpowder. And then the idea is that you run a wire that connects yeah. all of them together. And then when you... When you send a current through it, it actually, they all go off at the same time. So but but they, tying it to an office chair and chucking they, it down a lift shaft will create that. They will detonate, yeah, but effectively what you're doing is just running a chart. I mean, I can't officially back this up here. I've people. never tried it. I haven't actually built a bomb for, for at least since 1988 anyway. Off the Johnny Rogers sure, cookbook. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that bombs have changed now. You can set them off with a mobile phone. No, but all joking aside, it's the idea, it's like if you look at demolition, they... The wire goes through the detonator, you run the current through yeah. the wire, and it sets off the detonator, which go, goes off the explosive. And what Bruce does is basically puts all of the detonators, which will set off the bomb, and throws it down the lift shaft, hoping that upon Something impact, will there will be a spark somewhere. Oh, right. And there is, and kablooey. Kablooey. Well, yeah, I watched this on iTunes, and it must I think it was the like HD remastered version, because... The, ex- the C4 explosion was very loud on my headphones. I was yeah. like, ooh. Wow. It's uh, a big explosion. I think 
I always look back on it's that. It's a good movie. It's, it's a very good movie. Lots of physical projectiles going through the air. It's impressive to watch because they show you the outside of the building. They show you the inside of the building. You get to see everybody reacting to it. There's a little bit of 60s Batman shaky camera going yeah. on. Some, I think somebody even, sign of the time, somebody even shouts something like, God, it's like a goddamn war zone out yeah. here. <laughs> um, so it's... Um, yeah, it's 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 a good bang, and we love explosions and car chases on this podcast. Yeah. So McLean's a bit of a fly in the ointment. So he need somebody else needs to take charge and sort things out and get the guy from the money pit who's going to step forward. Then probably cinema's greatest douchebag slash yuppie. We were talking about in our last episode about our, the eighties phenomenon of the yuppies, but Ellis, Harry Ellis. Oh, sorry, coke fiend. Sprechensy tag. <laughs> Sprechensy tag. <laughs> Hans, booby. This isn't, what does he say? This isn't uh, Hans, TV. babe, put the gun away. This is radio, it's not television. Yeah, oh my God, um, what a douche. Now personally, I couldn't care less about your politics. Maybe you're pissed off at the camel jockeys, maybe it's the Hebes, Northern Ireland. It's none of my business. I figure you're here to negotiate, am I right? You're amazing, you figured this all out already. <laughs> hey. Business is business. Everybody knows somebody like this, especially if you're Joel Silver. This guy <laughs> is amazing. And no, funnily enough that apparently McTiernan wanted like the character to be more sort of charming and Cary Grant-esque. And uh, the guy who plays him, amazingly named in real life, Hart Buckner, who was also in Supergirl. He was the romantic lead in, in I the think Supergirl we've had film. this conversation before as well. Uh, not on the podcast. So um, Hart Buckner had this idea. He wanted to play him as a coked-up executive. Uh, McTiernan was dead against it. Joel Silver was like, I love it. Go for maximum asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and then proceeded to tell him lots of stories about uh, really uh, annoying oh, dealers. Whilst feeding him coke. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's... He is a great character that you love to hate. Apparently, um, Hart Bockner was improvising his lines, so that whole hands booby line was like much to the surprise. So, the genuine look, like that look on Rickman's face of what the fuck is this guy talking about, is genuine because he didn't know what this guy was coming up with. Yeah, you get the best reactions, but I think. Uh, obviously, you know, just to refer, it's been 30 years. We wanted to make sure that this podcast was more about what this film means to us. But there are other opinions available. There have been many over the years. And what some of these reviews, because I scanned a few of them, were saying was that, like, because the, the ones that interested me were the ones who didn't like this film. Mm. So they were the reviews I looked at. And these ones were saying, uh, all the supporting actors are really loosely drawn. They're all caricatures. And it's like... Do you not remember the 80s? Do you not remember what else was going on at the time? Shoulder pads. Shoulder pads were in. Long hair was kind of out. Coke was in in a big way. Um, Consumerism. Anyway. Show of the watch. Show of the watch. Exactly. And yeah, Ellis. You've got the douchebag cops. You've got Ellis. You've got... And then you've got mono e mono. You've got, you know, you've got Hans Gruber versus John McClane. But then everybody else is dressing you know yeah. to Theo, Theo. <laughs> to to Carl to I've to even forgotten Tony Tony Marco Marco I've, I've, what's the name of the guy from the money pit with the crazy that, that's Carl that's Carl I thought Carl was his brother that's Tony oh that's Tony okay. yeah Tony's the first to die 
yeah, Tony's a stupid policeman. Oh, right, okay, got it. Okay. Um, We're back in the room. There's Marco Heinrich, I think, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. There, there's a pub quiz question for you. Name all Name 12. Name all 12 terrorists from Die Hard. Go. Well, you've talked about the, it's time for, you know, Hans has a plan, and that involves the FBI. The circuits that cannot be cut are cut automatically in response to a terrorist incident. You ask for miracles, dear. I give you the FBI. So, yeah, Johnson & Johnson. No relation. Turn up, and it's bloody Robert Duffy. And the amazing The other guy out of, like, the guy from License, License to, to Kill. Kill. And he's called something like Grand Bush Wright or something, his, his name that in That sounds life. familiar. It is something... It is Le Bush Wright. It's something... Le, yeah, it is Le Grand Bush Wright. Yeah, I think it's, that's... It's something like... Amazing name. Um, but yes, he is the guy that once put away Sanchez in License to Kill. Yeah. Sanchez is in the Bahamas. Sorry. Um, that's only, another podcast. So yeah, they're a great double act. Douchebag's uh, still on the ground. He's down at ground zero. Douchebag's still on the ground. Al Powell's doing the running commentary. You've got that great scene where Hans and McLean face to face on the roof. Bill Clay. Bill Clay. Clay. Which was apparently a scene written in late into the show when Rickman showed that he could do a fairly decent American accent. And yeah, they did realise that McLean and Gruber had. Right, no scream time. Face to face scream yeah. time. And um, it would make the end scenes more palpable had they had some time together. Yeah, and it's it's a great moment of tension as well. They're, they're both playing. Is he going to work off. it out? Yeah, yeah. is he going to work it out? Is and then it quickly cuts to the scene of. there's there's a Being an 80s film, there's a lot of broken glass. Sheast dem fensters. Huh? Shoot. The glass. I love it how his own German compadre doesn't understand doesn't German. Understand what he's saying. Said to him. Um, and apparently, uh, according to one YouTube video, they spent 130 grand on stunt glass alone. I was going to say on glass. Yeah. On glass. That's ridiculous. And then that leads to one of the probably the, the most important parts of this film is we get to see emotional Brucey. Yeah, because what? what he's picking the glass out of his feet and he's on the crying front. And, and, and yeah, he, he knows he's, he doesn't think he can beat them. No, he doesn't. Think, and that is the difference between, and that is a key scene that differentiates McLean from Colonel John Matrix, from <laughs> what a name, John Rambo, from you know all those other Johns, other macho Johns. But it made him human, it made him relatable. And the thing that I realised watching this film is that I don't think you've really seen Bruce Willis do that range since. He's really, he either does Surly. He's got worse he, and worse he, and made more and more money doing it. But He, if did, you he are, does Surly and Grumpy very he's well. He's a businessman. He is a businessman. He worked very hard during the 80s. And then he he did some very he has done some amazing films. I think we rattle off a few. He's done some okay films, 
and then he's paid his bills, you know. Um, but he's been very active. He's he's a professional. But but he kind of works on cruise control, doesn't he? He does. Well, the... he's horrible in interviews. He hates the press. He hates the media. He hates his fans. He hates talking about. He hates. He hates. Di- his, he yeah. hates his fellow actors. He hates being typecast for Die Hard. Well, yeah. Appara- he's not a lot of fun. Apparently, I I was told by a, a friend of a friend who was an actor and had worked with. Bruce Willis on something and apparently the, 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 the thing going around set was whatever you do don't speak to Bruce about Die Hard because he hates like apparently it's, it's the, he's so sick of talking about it mm-hmm. he just doesn't want to talk about it and I think the thing at that point was that he had there was the original trilogy and then he signed up with Fox a contract to do another three and the fact that he that was like he felt like it was a noose around his neck that it was just like a commitment that he had to do so is that why there's so many of them yeah because I, I think what we talk about what do we love about this film what do we dislike the only the only thing i dislike about die hard and it's not about this film is the sequels and you know obviously we're not we're not we're not bashing brucey because there are there are you know there's con- contrary stories there's a great story from kevin smith talking about what Bruce is like on site where he brings his own chef and his barbecue and he cooks for the whole crew. And, but I, I do think it ties in with the fact that I think Bruce enjoys, sorry, Mr. Willis enjoys maybe less of the production side of it than being mm. on a movie set. You know, I think, I think it does bore him. I think it does tire him. And I think it, I think it does take a lot out of him. And that probably has been from probably having to sign away a lot of things in contracts earlier on in his career. When a bit, this was like when he signed up for the latter three diehard films. You're talking about after the third one? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, basically. So there's been fourth, and Four and five. A Moscow one that I haven't seen. Mm, that was that, I, what, that, was that, what was that actually called? Was it Live Free, A Good Day a good, to Die Hard? A Good Day. To, so in, a Good Day Not to See This Film. A Good Day. So in America, the fourth one was called Live, Live Free, Free or, or Die, Die Hard. Hard. Whereas in UK... That's not a bad title. In UK, we got Die, Die Hard 4.0. I actually enjoy that film, and I'm sorry, but I thought it was the early noughties version of Die Hard, and it ticked the boxes. Personally. Yes, it does make McLean a bit more of an superhero, in, uh, yeah. an indestructible character, but or yeah. a very lucky one. But I, yeah, I, I enjoy it. It's not as bad as some latter sequels of eighties classics like Terminator, Predator, Aliens. It's better than any of the, I'd say, yeah, most of the Terminator sequels that have happened more recently. And. Pre- predator and Aliens. Alien versus Predator. Yeah. No, we said we never mentioned this. Yeah, that's true. Getting better at this film. So the FBI are on site. We've got Agent Johnson and Johnson. They've got a very simple, non-risky solution to the problem. Now, I was amazed at this, and I was I had to... Why re- are we getting the gunships? I had to rewind it, because I was like, are those real helicopters going down the street in LA? And I've done some reading, and I'm pretty yeah, sure... Yeah, they would have been. It would have cost them money. But... No, no, they apparently they were told that they couldn't go that low and they got and, in trouble and they still did it anyway yeah um but it's amazing like we we haven't uh, touched on this but obviously this film has had so many imitators since or one of the more recent ones or two of the more, more recent die hard being, in the uh, white house yeah being i think it's white house down the one with jamie fox and which is instantly forgettable. China Better Tate. one is Olympus has fallen with Gerard Butler. With Gerard Butler. Um, but there's a scene in, 
I think it's one of them, I can't remember, because they're so indistinguishable, where they have helicopters flying through Washington really low, and it's terrible CG. That is, I think, even Olymp- though I haven't seen... Um, <coughs> it's Olympus. I haven't, oh, seen, sorry. I haven't seen White House Down, but in Olympus Has Fallen, it's basically a almost a C-70 airship comes in and basically oh, and flies down, down, you know, um, no, no, it, it is. It is then... I think it is Olympus has fallen. It's these really, cause it's Roland Emmerich as well, the guy who did Independence Day. I like blowing up that White House. But I love CGI, and it's just like ridiculously like they're f- they're flying at like ten foot off the ground. Yeah, um, down the street. Um, but yeah, I was amazed at the practical. It looks effect. cool. Even yeah. today, you watch this film, you watch Die Hard, and you see heli gunships going down through the streets of LA like that, and you can see the smog. You know, it's not CGI. It looks badass. Yeah, looks See, nice. you don't care how much they got fined, if they even did. I'm Joel fucking Silver. Make my movie. So, yeah, I'm not entirely sure of the FBI guy's plan. Is it just to pick everyone off in the helicopters, hoping that all the terrorists would be on the roof? Well, from what I know, um, which is very little about how the FBI operate, basically, because I've never luckily come and into contact Har- with them. Harry Bosch. Is Harry Bosch to. has very little dealings with the feds. Um, it just doesn't seem like, you know, rule 101 is let's get a couple of gunships and mow the shit out of everybody. Mm. Hostages be damned. It doesn't seem, I get that we don't negotiate with terrorists, but this seems like one step too Catch far. Catch them with the pants down. Exactly. It, no, but I, it, even when you try and go through this, it's like it serves the film well. It works well in the film. We all love this bit, especially since the terrorists have got their own counter plan, which is to blow the roof, which is uh, obviously going to, to make their plan, you know, completely useless. But it doesn't bear well to closer inspection. So, so what was the plan? Well, two agents on the ground made that somehow conjure gunships. Yeah. Because, I mean, how long would that take, really, to happen? So they conjure gunships out of nowhere. They hop on them. They're allowed to take control of the machine gun. And then they're just going to fly up to the building. And what? Just... Anyway, it's not a very well-conceived plan. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. All you need to know is that Han Group has, pl- has got a counter plan. Takes out the choppers. Brucey yeah. e. jumps off. Another impressive explosion. Another imp- very impressive explosion. And another very impressive scene of tension with Brucey e. jumping off. Again, completely ridiculous with the fire hose. Yeah. And what does it catch on? A ledge? It's like Mr. Lucky. So yeah. it does work. It's great. And then, yeah, he does the great acrobatics and shoots the window and gets back in the building. Then he takes, uh, well, we'll skip to the end. Now, now we skip to a death scene because he basically has to go through a number of henchmen before he gets to the main showdown with Carl. No, no, um, he takes out Carl before they blow the roof. Oh, uh, with the chain. Mr. Yeah, Anderson. and more, he sorry, thinks he's killed. Sorry, I say he takes out Carl, but there's more delicious stuntman. <laughs> sorry, the other stuntman. And it's actually the chain that takes him out. Yeah. Which he, is in the car park or something. No, no, it's up on the roof, but then... It looks like an entry bay of some building. But he's been li- hanging there for ages, but he's still alive at the end. Don't worry about Don't that. Don't worry about that. It serves the plot. McLean takes out the last few 
terrorists. He does the great taping the gun behind his back. I'd love to see that work on a sweaty back. You know, it just seems and weird. I'd, I'd, I'd just love to see a cutscene of him trying to apply oh, the no, tape. I haven't to his... quite got it. So what did he put? He put the tape on across the gun, left enough space, and then slaps it on his back. And then he has to go to a mirror to check that nothing's viewable. Like this, this for this to work. Well, it... We're not picking about this film. Not at all. Actually, I remember that that leads me to. I remember seeing some of the. the when out- do we get to Holly's cleavage? I've always wondered about that. A little bit too far. A little I, bit I don't too, know. A little what... bit was like it's been half an hour since we saw some TNA. Is it just like throw on the ground? Oh no, her blouse is falling. It's but I've kind always... of made to look like that, but it's something weird. It's, it's it's sort of like let's show the guys a bit more TNA. Yeah, it's, it's, I've always we need found to that keep bit. the guys engaged. He's going to sleep. Going show on. some tits. <laughs> but, but surely the explosions show him the tits. <laughs> but there's a great outtakes on the DVD of. I don't even know the terrorist name, so I wouldn't win in that pub quiz. But the guy who plays the receptionist, the big Texan guy. He looks like guy, a male model guy, yeah. Definitely um, a model. Let's call do, him Jono. Who doesn't have a, an, a German accent, so no. he's... He, he he's mu- got a bit of a Texas yeah. name. He looks. We used to call him the Texas Timothy Dalton. Yeah, fair enough. Well, let's, let's call him that. Um, but there's, cause there's a scene where where he gets shot point blank in what like does, straight and falls over right between the eyes straight between the eyes but in the outtakes on the dvd they're showing like they're basically firing like a jelly pellet at his head to get the dot on his head and it keeps missing or getting him in the eye and it's just like take take 13 and it's just like constantly just firing this thing at this guy's head it's brilliant but then it gets to hands hanging out the building yeah holding on to the watch Great moment that everyone remembers where that music ding, maybe a little ding, bit over dramatic. Ding, ding. Maybe that was maybe that was Ringman saying if I'm gonna die. It has to be over the top. Yeah. But apparently in the behind the scenes that look on Rickman's face as he drops is genuine because the stunt coordinator said they were gonna drop him on three and then they went one and dropped him. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's just like, No, <laughs> But yeah, it's it's uh, it's a great death, and it's almost like horror esque, as you say, with that that music, the slow mo. Well, because you're like, is he gonna take her with the? Is it gonna be like as? You is just... he gonna shoot her as he's falling? Yeah, he, he's, he pulls he's up the gun. Very sexy, shiny Walter PPK. Mm. Um, Which I think. Sorry, what's that? No, Jeff, we'll be ready for you in a minute. Cut to the end. Carl is still alive. Still alive. Still got his Sig Sauer org. Yeah, he's still got his, his, his machine gun. But the great news is that Al Pal learns to kill again. Which just reminds me of Loaded Weapon. Because that's... <laughs> Shoot him, Sam! Shoot him! It's the spirit of Christmas. He learns yeah. to kill... I shot a kid, but I should kill again. He's, uh, he's, finally got his, he's finally got his mojo back. He's finally got his mojo back. I, I was really... It's a, it's a nice, touching moment. John gets together with his wife... The reporter gets it in the face, and Al Powell gets to kill a gets to know what it feels like to kill a guy. Several times. She, yeah, he, he does, shoots him. does shoot him. He does find his mojo a few times. So, um, um, do we want to talk about the PlayStation One game? Which was it? The PlayStation was it the Mega Drive? No, it was. It was definitely PlayStation One because I remember the disc. 
And I remember the noise. I think it was one of our earlier PlayStation games. The thing that we just want to say is that this came out, we were very excited, and it was covering all three, because all three films had been made by that point, and there were three games. It was for three for, for the three first three films. It was the Die Hard trilogy game. Yeah, that was what it was called. And But there were three completely different games. So the first game was third person, i.e. what George and I refer to as the Tomb Raider view, Model. where... You went up floor you by floor. You went up floor by floor, killing lots of guys, shooting lots of glass. Killing hundreds of terrorists. Yeah, there was at least 200 guys, but the audio what? was not lifted from the film that obviously paid, and this was, we're talking 90s, yeah? Late 90s. Late 90s games, so I mean, we're talking about some really cheap voice work and just one of the terrorists... It's, impersonators. Yeah, impersonators impersonating the terrorists was just, that's McLean. <laughs> it was just some of the worst. And, and the thing with the Bruce was like, not bad day. Yeah, me and Mamna, but how could this happen to the same guy twice? And it was like, that's not your voice. To lose. You surprise me again, MacLay. Help me! Second game was a f- FPS. Well, the no, third was, game, no, the, the second Die Hard Two, was a light gun game. Yeah. So, because well, I remember we actually bought the light gun for for it. that one game, um, <laughs> and it was a great game um, because, yeah, again, you just shot everything, shoot anything that moves, even the hostages. Even. It's funny, shoot the hostage. Um, yeah, because remember, if you shot the helicopters, you got more bullets or something. Um, <laughs> and then the third game, which I think you were less of a fan of, like it was funny because you were. I loved the first. You one. were really good at the first one. I loved the first one. I loved the third one, which was a driving game because obviously the third is in New York game with all the bombs and you were basically had to get from point A to point B before the bomb went off and it was essentially like it was before a, a Driver it was a precursor to Driver which and was a gra- precursor to Grand Theft Auto it was one of the most it was before Grand Theft Auto the original top down version even came out yeah no so it was it was very ahead of its time it was very enjoyable and I just remember lots of quotes of a guy who sounded like Samuel and slow down we'll go back down and also there being a quote for at one point you're ferrying, I think, some Texas or South sounding president type guy. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. Um, I think getting me confused with Driver, but never mind. Is that Driver? Where we're going, Sean. Oh yeah, it was that Driver. Yeah, so I am getting confused. Um, but no, that was a, again, it ties into the memories of like that, that game came out. Yeah, maybe. It came of, out just at, not long after Die Hard 3. Yeah, 90, I think it came out in 97, 98. Great, what a year for films. We should do a podcast all about films from 97. But anyway, getting back to Jeff. Jeff, give us a minute. George, they're outside. Okay, let them in. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Coulda, woulda, shoulda is a who's who. So this is basically where George showing his sleuthing and also a combination of his knowledge, because he does know some of this from years and years of reading the press. Uh, the other actors and sometimes even directors and scriptwriters who were considered for this film, but just weren't chosen. So no surprise that Arnie and Stallone were approached. A lot, I and, imagine. And turned it down. But I think they, obviously, you know, we talked about Frank Sinatra. Where are we? Sorry, just to stop your, your mojo. 
Where are we vis-a-vis Stallone and Arnie's films at this time? Well, so this would have been made in '87, peak of their careers. So. No, no, I'm saying. So what? What else would they have been doing? So well, Commando was Com- '86. You know, Commando was at '85, I think. So Commando was '85. Rambo was what, Rambo Two was the same year as Commando. I think that was '85. Okay, so they they would have Both just done peak. those and probably looking at. Yeah, sequels or other. Maybe why the reason why there's that confusion with it being Commando Two because it was not long after. But I think it obviously ties into um, I say being more of a towering inferno type thriller, you know, based like the original book was. So they're approaching more serious actors. So Clint Eastwood, Paul Newman, Burt Reynolds were all approached and turned down. Even Richard Gere turned it down. So Fox were getting desperate. <laughs> Fox were getting desperate. Oh my God, can you imagine that film with Richard Gere? Oh <laughs> Richard God. Gere doing his uh, that smile and squint and, you know, it's just like, uh, what does it look like? Um, I'm trying to order goddamn pizza. <laughs> I don't think it would work. It would not work. So Fox were getting desperate and ended up because they, you know, was in production, they end up spending five million, which was a huge fee at the time for Bruce Willis, who was a TV star with with no film credits to his name or no no major film credits. So yeah, it was a big gamble to cast Brucey, obviously. And apparently, on the first posters, Brucey's face didn't even uh, appear. No. First original posters, but now obviously, who was I- it? Takagi, <laughs> <laughs> St- Stallone, Stallone's face. No one will tell the difference. But obviously, yeah, there's that iconic poster of half his face and mm-hmm. the tower and explosion. So yeah, uh, but I think we should finish up with uh, the important question: Is Die Hard a Christmas film? Well. This was passed to the man himself in recently in the last two or three months and he went on record as to say rather characteristically yet controversially that in his opinion it's not a Christmas movie. It's not a Christmas movie. But he said it's a Bruce Willis movie. Is that, I didn't hear what he followed up with. Well, that yeah. kind of answers the question, ladies and gentlemen. It is a Chris. If you if you believe there is such a thing, what's more likely that there are Christmas movies or Bruce Willis movies? However, in a recent interview from Empire for its 30th anniversary, both screenwriters, so Stephen E. D'Souza, Souser, says. Of course, it's a Christmas movie. You've got bail bonds falling like snow at the end. Yeah. And Jeb Stewart, who's the other scriptwriter, says... It's a Christmas pie. It always was a Christmas movie, as it was in the novel. It's about family. It's about getting together and all those Christmas films. It's yet. Yeah, it's, it's set at a Christmas party. So... But yeah. also, he turns up with his jacket. It's L.A. You don't need a jacket in L.A. unless it's the coldest point in the year. And... It's dry heat the rest of the time. The nail in the coffin is Fox are releasing a 30th anniversary edition of the film, complete with Christmas cards and a Christmas sweater type sleeve for the Blu-ray. And, but what would be you more- You no better than Rupert Murdoch. What would, yeah, but what's more contentious? What gets more hits? What gets more follows? If, if Bruce Willis had come out and said, it's a Christmas movie, what's more noteworthy? That or him coming out saying it's not a Christmas movie? 
But if True. you follow it up with it's a Bruce Willis movie, it kind of takes apart that he didn't but get the funny question. funny enough, ironically enough, the film was released in summer. But then you bring it to the more for a more recent fanfare, uh, Iron Man three. True. That came out in the summer, May. Shane Black movie. Another Shane, yeah, Shane Black, a Shane Shane Black thing, which I enjoyed. I think I probably enjoyed the script writing more than the plot. I didn't get all of the Christmas references, and I think, I mean, you know, I have this pet peeve that uh, you don't have to look far in terms of the um, content that we consume to see how lazy Hollywood is, just to look at how many shows are set in LA, set in California, police shows, films and everything, you know, so that when you're shooting something in LA, I think the hardest thing to pull off is, yes, I'm not saying they don't have Christmas, but to make it a Christmassy film and to shoot it in LA, it's like... Is it what? It's it's a... um, An oxymoron? Yeah. Yeah, yeah think, it uh, is. It's but I think we, we haven't really touched on the fact that this... in New York. New York's your Christmas town. No, but this this film has been so influential on action cinema, it changed the landscape in terms of what an action film could be. Can, the, that whole... We've talked about, you know, speed, that whole it's diehard in a dot, dot, dot has become a genre. Executive decision. Executive Kurt decision. Russell. You've got. Oh God! There's so there's, there's uh, more than under siege under on a siege, boat. Yeah. There's there's more than we can list. Die Hard in a, in a White ones, House too. There's ones that we haven't seen. There's ones that we don't want to see. There's ones I've got on my Sky Plus, like Sudden Death, which is Van Damme in an ice hockey arena. Oh my God! Where I'm he, only hearing about where this he beats now. up a mascot dressed as a giant penguin. Come on! Why aren't we watching this right now? That sounds like a special. Put it on um, the JCVD list. Put it on the list. Put it on the um, VD list. Well, yeah, I think it is kind of lightning in a bottle, but if you look at... We, but I think we talked about this in, in Predator, that, like, John McTiernan, you know, in terms of directors three in a row, Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for Red October... Boom, quite, boom, boom. It's quite a... Yeah, it's quite a hat trick. And as you say, it's it's all the people that go into it. It's the scriptwriters. It's it is you know the producers, the cast. It's it's a perfect storm. But they really don't make them like they used to. They don't. However, they did make better sequels, I think, because the second one is not that bad. I enjoyed the some elements of the second one that give you what you want out of a sequel and obviously we think it's such talk, a good film and we will cover about, it it gives you snow yes it gives us the snow it shows us the east coast but we will cover it because it stands alone it's a great film just as we'll cover Die Hard 3 I um, really like Die Hard 3 Die Hard 3 is a brilliant film but both that's what I'm saying that, oh sorry Die Hard with a vengeance but we they, those, those are two good sequels that stand alone as good films which are improved if you know the other films but mm. and I just don't think unless you're a big studio, even big studios make screw-ups. I think we've seen the biggest of the biggest recently, like Disney have completely screwed up Star Wars. Marvel are running out of ideas and they're now going into phase 11 or whatever it is of their marketing thing. Even the best laid plans come to an end. And here you have films that were made back in the day when it wasn't about an eight film franchise. It was about, okay, that was good. Should we try and make another one? Should we try and make another one? You know, whereas now it's like, you make a film, a successful plan for a trilogy, you know? It's really and if the trilogy is successful, that trilogy needs to spawn another trilogy. What's, what's a shared universe? 
Exacto. Anyway, we've been talking for a while now. Far too long. Far too long. But this film means a lot to us. It's shaped cinema, um, especially... It shaped us. It's got no car chases in it whatsoever. Not this one. It does have lots of Argyle sat in a limo listening to Stevie Wonder for the whole film. Isn't he listening to Skeletons in the Closet for about three hours? Pretty much the whole... Yeah, it goes from light to dark, and yeah. So and he's, and he's and he's on the phone. It's okay, baby. So yeah, that was Die Hard. The Hard in German. In D Hard, nobody speaks German could be evil. We hope you've enjoyed it. Please check us out on. Uh, if you want to stay in touch, George writes some very good reviews about these stuff. Films. No, mainly we we cover these films in the podcast and then George follows them up with a retrospective written review. With words. With words and stuff. And he delves into a bit more detail about things in a much more coherent manner. In a much more coherent manner than we might have done at some point. Uh, We're on obviously Facebook. We're We're everywhere. Please, you know, if you enjoy listening to these podcasts and we really hope you do, we we try our best. Um, Your best. Your best. If you do enjoy listening to these podcasts and... If you know any other like-minded souls. And listen to them on an iPhone, you know, please do leave us a short review on iTunes. It'll make uh, all the difference and it gets the the podcast out to more like-minded people. We've already got some great reviews from you people. Thank you very much, but I think... And let us know your suggestions. What do you want us to cover for 2019? Yes, there's going to be obviously a few anniversaries coming up, so check out your favourite films of 89, 99. Uh, I think that's as far back as we're going to go for now. We can't go as far as 2009. Or 79. Um, So, yeah, uh, we hope you've enjoyed the show. And next time, we're going to be back with a Christmas special focusing on insert film here we don't know what it is but you're going to enjoy it it's going to be special it'll be momentous and we hope you've enjoyed this episode i've been charlie mcgee i've been george mcgee and we will see you next time bye-bye bye-bye i think the government has better things to do than to read my mail People write letters to movie stars. The Simpson guy writes to movies. Dear Die Hard, you rock, especially when that guy was on the roof. P.S. Do you know Mad Max? (laughs) 